Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, please come on by, sign up for our good stuff, and um, 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 and make the world a better place. All right, so uh, very excited to have back, I believe for the second time, maybe the third time, but definitely short of the gold jacket. Uh, probably one of the pundits I rely on most for understanding the most things. Um, the problem is that he's so sharp, sometimes you get paper cuts just shaking his hand. Uh, he is, is Josh Krauschauer. Uh, he's the politics editor at National Journal and the host of the Against the Grain podcast and writes the Against the Grain column for National Journal, which really is uh, required reading. He's also generous in retweeting excerpts from the G file, so I'm grateful for that as well. But uh, Josh, welcome back to The Remnant. Hey, Jonah. It's great to be back on the podcast. Um, so where to begin? Um, uh, let's start with your latest against the grain column. And then I, I do want to talk about this, this democratic autopsy stuff. Cause I think you had some interesting things to say about it. And I think it's a really, it's an interesting topic that has not gotten nearly the coverage of the sort of navel gazing that the Republican party has gotten. I shouldn't say navel gazing cause it actually is important. The stuff on the Republican party side, but anyway, um, uh, you wrote a piece about how Trump is meddling in the Senate, uh, election process. Um, when you just sort of lay out the, the landscape for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll go a little big picture to to start. Um, when you look at the midterms for 2022, usually the opposition party, in this case the Republicans, are well positioned to make gains, are well positioned to retake the House, and, and on paper should be favorites to win back the, the Senate majority, 50-50 Senate right now. You've got a lot of red state uh, or at least purple state Democrats up for re-election. The odds, just on the fundamentals, just on past history, usually would be favorable for the Republican Party. Uh, But what we're seeing on the ground in these individual races is that Trump is endorsing his favorite candidates, attacking Republicans he doesn't view as sufficiently loyal to to his cause, to his uh, denial of election results uh, in in big races, important must-win races for, for the party. And he's just creating chaos everywhere he, he, he chimes in. Uh, most recently, over the weekend, Trump made a rare appearance at a North Carolina Republican uh, shindig where he surprised almost everyone in the room by endorsing a, a very conservative congressman, Ted Budd, over the, the state's former Republican governor, Pat McCrory. Uh, came as a surprise to, to folks in the room, changed the trajectory of that race uh, pretty, pretty significantly. Uh, but it's just that's just the latest example of, of things he's been doing behind the scenes, whether it's 
you know, trying to get Herschel Walker to, to run for the Senate in Georgia, despite Republicans being worried about whether he's ready uh, to for prime time, whether he's a, a credible candidate in that race. You know, you see this in, in Arizona where Trump has attacked Doug Ducey, a very popular Republican governor, and it looks like he's not going to run in part because of that internal Republican Party tension. And even the state's attorney general, a very Trumpian conservative guy who's been loyal to Trump throughout his presidency, ended up getting thrown under the bus because he's not willing to entertain some of these crazy conspiracy theories about, about last year's election. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff is taking place behind the scenes, some of it a little more publicly, like we saw last weekend. But it's dividing the Republican Party. It's promoting unelectable or less electable candidates in these big must-win races for Republicans. And it's changed the overall uh, outlook for one that would be a little bit favorable to Republicans. You know, if if, if you had a Trump out of the picture or playing a more constructive role, I would say Republicans would have better than even odds to win back the Senate. But as things stand now, I I think Democrats are clear favorites to hold hold their majority. Um, And so when you say, I mean, obviously, I agree, but like when you say uh, Trump is dividing the party, what's your sense of, you know, a lot of people, when they hear divide, they think like in half, but it's not in half, right? The problem is, is that if you need, um, uh, if you need a, if you need to get to 51% or 50 plus one and the party is divided where you just are alienating 5%, you're still going to lose just as much as if you were alienating 25%, right? So, I mean, the leverage is in some ways with the minority who are, are pissed off um, going either way. Um, but how, how, how much of the party wants to go all in on the stop the steal stuff versus just wants people to be nice to Trump versus wants people to purge Trump. I mean, how do you, how do you divide up the pie? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Jonah, because that, 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 that's the, the, the question that Republicans don't have an answer to. And I think they're hoping that, you know, Republicans by and large, 70, 80% of Republicans, according to polls, view Trump favorably support him. But when you actually look deeper into those numbers, you know, maybe about a quarter to a third of the party are real stop the steal activists, the, the grassroots folks who are with Trump through hell and high water. I, I would even say it's, it even goes beyond Trump himself. There, there's a certain style of mean-spirited politics, of, of kind of jumping on every social media grenade that certain Republicans are embracing. You know, Matt Gates, mm-hmm. Josh Mandel, who's a Senate candidate in Ohio. There, there's, there's a a personality type that Trump has uh, given Republicans freedom to, 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 to use in these campaigns, and it has... Uh, a, a certain following in Republican Party politics these days. That's the, I think that's the dangerous element for the Republicans. This this own the libs, you know, nihilistic, you know, attack anyone to the left of of, of the most right wing elements of the Republican Party. I think there's a broader element of the Republican Party when you look at the the public opinion research that likes Trump, supports Trump. When they see Trump endorsing a candidate, it gives it gives uh, these voters sort of a good seal of a Republican Party stamp of approval. On, on these candidates. So it means a whole lot. They, they like Trump, but they're not necessarily um, election denialists. They're not necessarily going to agree with everything Trump says. They're the types of people that say, you know, I don't like how he tweets. I don't like his his tone, but I, I like the policies of his administration. And I think the left, the Democrats have, have gone off the deep end. So um, the, the key for Republicans is to kind of 
keep Trump in the tent. You can't win with him. You can't win without him. It's it's mm-hmm. a catch twenty two for Republicans in these swing states and swing districts. They need Trump's voters to show up in a midterm election. Uh, they need to get turnout to the point where you know you saw what happened. We saw what happened in Georgia in January where Trump suppressed the Republican vote. You talk about vote suppression. The biggest instance of vote suppression in the last year was Trump suppressing his own vote in those two Georgia Senate runoffs in January. So Republicans need Trump's voters to show up in November next year. But they also, as you note, Jonah, can't turn off that 15 to 20 percent of the Republican Party that really doesn't like Trump, that wants him to move on and wants the party to move past him. They'll still vote Republican if you get the right candidates uh, as as nominees in these races, but they won't tolerate some of the more crazy elements that Trump has fueled in the party. Yeah. So, I mean, you used, and I totally, this is not a criticism. It's just, it's, it's, it's a problem with the language that we've got these days, but you use some phrasing along the lines of, um, got to support the most right wing candidate out there. And my problem with that is that we're sort of in a definitional swamp at this point. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, you'll, you've made this point more often than I have probably, you know, Elise Stefanik is not more right wing according to any normal on paper guide about what right wing is supposed to mean than Liz Cheney is. But, and so, and I, I, look, I mean, the point that the real litmus test is basically loyalty to Trump kind of issues, not, um, um, or willingness to not be rude to Trump issues, which is a slightly different thing, right? Um, those are the real litmus tests. But, and maybe you can disagree with that, but the, my question goes a little differently on this is, are there policy issues left on the right that would be disqualifiers for Trump, right? I mean, if Trump came out to be pro-choice, do you think that would cost him with that core group of of Trump base or what are the issues that Trump has to kowtow to? Is it just basically guns and abortion? Is it anything else? Is it, is it even that immigration maybe as well? I mean, you're, you're right. The, the, the Parkland shooting, which you know took place under his presidency, there were some moves that Trump thought about taking to be a little more moderate on, on the issue of gun control. And then he, he heard it from, from his base. So he, he, there are some issues on the conservative, right? Where he has been sufficiently cowed uh, not to kind of create his own, his own uh, set of issues around, you know, around his, whatever he wants to do. But, you know, Trumpism to me is more style over substance. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. You, you didn't even have a platform for the Republican party in the 2020 um, convention. You look at these races, you look at these primary races. Uh, Ohio is a great example uh, Rob Portman retiring largely because he's kind of getting sick of dealing with all the headaches that, that Trump and the, the evolution in the party has created. But you have a, uh, for front runner or a serious candidate and, and former state treasurer Josh Mandel, who was like this Mitt Romney establishment Republican, uh, good good Chamber of Commerce supporting, uh, as, you know, establishment type, who is now you know burning masks on YouTube to to showcase his fidelity to the you know the former president. He's you know echoing these alt right tropes on his social media feed. He, he's playing to the ugliest and, and, and frankly most bigoted stereotypes of the Republican Party. And he's hoping to get a base of, you know, 25, 30% of the, the party in the primary to, to win. And he's you know, leading in the polls right now. The leading rival he's facing, Jane Timken, was the uh, state party chair of the Ohio Republican Party under Trump. 
she was considered a Trump loyalist. She displaced uh, her predecessor, who was much more critical of Trump. She, I can't name a single issue where she disagrees with the former president on, but because she wasn't vocal enough about you know, condemning uh, an Ohio congressman who voted for impeachment, because she hasn't uh, attacked her own governor, who's a Republican, Mike DeWine, for uh, his public health regulations. As she's getting attacked by the Trump wing, the Trump, I don't even call it the Trump, it's the Trumpist, um, mm-hmm. the cult of personality wing, for not being sufficiently loyal enough. Now, I think loyalty isn't a question. Every Republican who wants to win a, a, a nomination pretty much has to be loyal to Trump. I think that's now, we're long past the time where speaking out against Trump is, is, is feasible for winning a Republican primary. I think, you know, Liz Cheney is going to be in a heck of a heck of a fight. And I think she's a clear underdog in Wyoming next year. But there is sort of this compromise that the so-called establishment wants, which is they'll indulge Trump. They'll, they'll entertain uh, a lot of his, you know, uh, conspiracy theories. But they won't go as far as, you know, the Matt Gateses of the world, the Josh, you know, the, the, the people who are performative Trumpists. And, you know, that I, I think to some effect, they're, they're whistling past the graveyard. They're, you know, trying to make they've, they've moved steadily towards the Trump side of the party to the point where, you know, Jeb Bush's son is now not even mentioning his dad or his uncle's name in campaign ads and is, is declaring his loyalty to Trump. It's kind of sad, but it's the only way you can win. Republican primaries these days, uh, making this sort of de- deal with the devil, this, this un- unholy compromise uh, where you support Trump, but you don't necessarily endorse his most crazy uh, rantings. Yeah, the, the the George P. Bush drink cozy that has the cartoon, the silhouette cartoon of Trump saying that that George P. Bush is the only is is my Bush. He's the good Bush because uh, it is so depressing that that the Bush people would make that. Um, I, I, I hear you. So the the so the question is where do you see because I, I i find I, one of the things i found surprising about your piece about the the senate stuff is that from all the reporting i've read and from people i know in that orbit he takes his endorsements really really seriously because he loves the idea and he loves to say that he always backs winners and you know it's sort of like the old DC lobbyist rule that when it, you know, for, if you want to claim that you're a rainmaker, whenever it rains, start dancing so you can claim that you did it, right? He likes to claim that whenever someone wins, it's because of him. And, um, and so picking people, I mean, so picking people who are the worst Senate candidates rather than claiming the victory, um, rather than taking the W seems like a, a departure from everything else I've heard, at least in the house stuff. What? And so it gets, it's, so first explain that, you know, and then, exp- and then more broadly, it seems like Trump's influence within the party is increasing at the same time as influence in the country is shrinking really, really rapidly. Um, um, where do you, where would you predict the Trump fade goes or doesn't go? So I would look at it like, like this, there was a big debate when Trump was leaving office that we were talking about like how chaotic things would be in, in his departure. And when we saw what happened on January 6th, but you know, Trump's power base is no more except for within the Republican party, except within this, this slice of, of, of partisans. And um, he's putting his political capital to the test, no doubt. 
if you're an optim, if you're a sort of Trump skeptical Republican and you're hopeful that Trump is going to fade away, you could look at these endorsements, which, by the way, um, what happened in North Carolina, for example, that was not a well-organized, well-oiled endorsement. Mm-hmm. That, that's not this. I've, I've talked to a few folks sort of involved in the process. It, it doesn't seem like it was really thought through. Uh, a lot of folks have blamed the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows in North Carolina, uh, congressman, for um, getting involved and, and getting in Trump's ear and, and making an impact. But this is not, if you want to maximize, if, if you're Trump and you want to maximize your own influence, you might save that endorsement till, you know, later in the, in the process, right. you wouldn't just drop it uh, early in, 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 in 2021. So, you know, if you're an optimist and you're, and you're on the Trump, you know, the Trump critical wing of the party, you could say that Trump's influence is peaked. If the former governor McCrory wins the primary, if Trump's endorsements don't, don't come to fruition, that would actually be the first sign that, the, the power just that he had during his presidency really isn't uh, there anymore. It's not, not to the same extent. It's kind of like the wizard of Oz, you know, behind the throne, there's the, the threat of power, but, but it, it doesn't actually work anymore. You know, I'm, well, this North Carolina race is a big test of that because the guy he endorsed, no one's ever heard of. He's got very low name yeah. ID. He's, you know, even folks who cover Congress don't particularly uh, know, know, know much about Ted Budd, but you know, if, if, if he's in first place in a few months and it, you know, it, it still shows that Trump does have quite a bit of. Power. I guess there hasn't been time for any post poll, you know, post endorsement polling yet, right? So we don't know no, if no. you got a big bunt or anything like that. It's early, and and honestly, um, that that's sort of the optimistic view for people who want Trump to be the uh, yesterday's news. Uh-huh. I, I think the more um, insidious impact he has is just preventing candidates from running, like just yeah. You know, the, the, the party, you know, the, the party usually stands for principles and values and people who support said conservative values are attracted to, to running for office. But when your party is run by a guy who demands a cult of personality around him, you're in, you're just turning people off. You're getting people, you're, you're, you're turning people off from running. And you're seeing that happening in Georgia. Um, even one of Trump's supporters, Doug Collins, decided not to run because he didn't want to have to deal with the headaches that are yeah. dividing the, the Georgia Republican Party. You know, Doug Ducey, uh, you know, a guy who, again, loyal to Trump for the most part, but unwilling to go with his uh, election fraud. Ridiculous. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I you know, the, the, the number of Republicans who I've maintained serious respect for is, is pretty low, and Ducey's one of them. I mean, there are people, who, you know, there, 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 are, there are people in my world of anti-Trump types who think, any compromise with Trump is morally illegitimizing, delegitimizing. And I look at what Ducey's had to put up with and what he's had to sort of defend and what he's had to, to, to deal with. And, and I got, while at the same time doing a lot of really good policy stuff, uh, you know, he's, he's one of the guys that gives me some hope for the Republican party. And, and, um, and there are not a lot of them out there. Uh, well, I was going to Go say, one guy who comes to mind that I hear a lot of anti-Trump Republicans championing is Mike Gallagher, a congressman from Wisconsin, who is a very likely contender for that Senate race if Ron Johnson retires, as many people mm-hmm. expect him to. Ron Johnson, or sorry, Gallagher was one of Liz Cheney's biggest defenders, biggest supporters um, after January 6th, and he was for weeks afterwards. He has changed his tune uh, as he's tried to prepare potentially for a Senate run, he now realizes that the Wisconsin, I mean, he, he needs, he, he did a total 180. And this is someone who 
was was a reliable uh, anti-Trump or you know the Trump skeptical voice, let's say. Yeah. Um. So that that's that's what's really um alarming, right? That that it's not so much that mainstream Republicans can't win; it's that the mainstream Republicans have have sacrificed their principles, sacrificed their dignity in order to win. He's George P. Bush. There's a whole list of people who have done the right thing and probably if they were elected would govern in a, in a pretty effective fashion, but they've been so morally compromised because Trump makes demands that are, that are just, just uh, morally uh, unacceptable. Yeah. Or uh, acceptable. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I mean, just for, for full disclosure, Mike Gallagher is a friend. He's a friend of this podcast. I asked him about running against Ron Johnson um on on here a couple months ago and uh he definitely demurred and said it's all he's all in for ron johnson of course he is if ron johnson decides to run i disagree with the way gallagher has behaved since uh, since the cheney stuff resurfaced and it makes me sad um but i still think he's an honorable decent guy who's got himself in the bind that the rest of the gop does of trying to figure out how to like be politically viable while at the same time Eating large bowls of fecal matter more often than the job should require. Well, and Jonah, um, I think that that raises like a philosophical question, which, you know, I think as a political reporter, a political analyst, I, I think it's more important to kind of look at a politician's overall career, look at their overall record, um, especially in the Republican Party, knowing what the political uh, realities are these days. You know, ultimately, some folks may say things to, to, to win. Um, and, and, you know, they, they realize that they have to make sacrifices in order to prevent maybe more, more nihilistic elements of the party from succeeding. But ultimately I think you need to have a more holistic look at some of these, some of these candidates, because, you know, at least in the Republican party, there's a certain, there's, there's, the question is how much compromise do you make with, with, with the Trump wing of the party? All right. So, um, uh, let's move on to the democratic autopsy. And and just sort of the, the the plight of the Democrats as well. I mean, it it is one of the standard themes on on this podcast is I am convinced that both parties are determined to be minority parties, um, and um, it seems to me sort of transparently obvious that if the Democratic Party simply moved rightward to the place where the median democratic vote, uh, the, the sort of ideological profile of the median democratic voter, um, or even the median African-American democratic voter, um, the, the, not only would the country improve, the democratic party would be a, a clear majority party. Um, we know why the Republican party is struggling to be a majority party. Um, you know, and Trump is both part of it and symbolic of other parts of it. Um, what is so? What are your key takeaways from this? Uh, what was it? O'Malley what was the guy's name. Uh, uh, there, there were three groups that that put the autopsy together. Third way is a moderate yeah. uh, Democratic group. The other two are uh, represent African American Democrats, Latino Democrats. So, so it was sort of a, a cross cross ideological uh, amb- ambition for, for the project. Um, so, what were your key? Ta- First of all, did, did you think the autopsy was uh, was a clear-eyed assessment of what actually happened or does it come or were there things in it that were sort of like mm, that feels like there's some political papering over and coalition stuff corrupting the analysis so what do you think of it overall and 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 what were your key takeaways 
Yeah, the analysis was excellent. I mean, I know a lot of these folks that were involved in the in the in the autopsy, and they they are among the smartest and, and, and clear eyed folks when it comes to interpreting data, understanding political uh, realities. Um, the conclusions, if you read the conclusion part of the of the report, I think they pulled their punches. Um, mm-hmm. They 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 have to deal with, uh, as you noted, Jonah, different different groups that don't tolerate a whole lot of dissent from the party line, and, and that and to be honest, that that is. What you're seeing in the two parties right now are almost two sides of the same coin of extremism. What you see in the Democratic Party is that they're to their advantage, they have a lot more moderates. They have a lot more pragmatists. They they would nominate Joe Biden. They nominated mm-hmm. Terry McAuliffe. There, there is a ma- moderate majority even in, in many states and, and, and congressional districts. Uh, but they're being held hostage by their staff, by the mm-hmm. bureaucracy, by, by the operatives. I can't tell you, especially in the last few years with Trump in office, how many Democrats I talk to tell me something along the lines of, you know, I know the right political way to do it, but I can't tolerate that morally. My my own moral conscience won't allow me to call for more border security or call for, <laughs> you know, like this is not how political operatives used to talk, but yeah. especially among a younger generation of Democrats, they don't want to take the most politically expedient path. They They are willing to put their own principles, which are often out of line with where the public is and even where their party is, and they're willing to do things that are not in their own self-interest. For the Republicans, they, they, they have a different problem. Um, it's their voters. It's, it's, you know, I always like to say that Trump, Trumpism is a demand-side problem, not a supply-side problem. It's not for lack of good, good, good elected officials. They're bad ones too, but there are a lot of really talented lawmakers that are being kind of dragged into Trumpism because that's what Republican Party voters demand. Um, so the Republic, if you talk to Republic, I mean, this is, this has always been the case in my experience in covering politics, Republican operatives, Republican staffers are much more willing to trash their own side, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. especially, especially under Trump, you know, they would leak all kinds of negative things ab- about yeah. him and, and, and say how crazy he is. Um, but their problem, so there's no illusion of like what the right way to, they know what the right way to, to position themselves to get elected, but they can't do it because their voters, their primary voters won't allow it. So you have this weird dynamic where Republicans are kind of giving Democrats this great opportunity to move to the middle to really cement the support that Biden got from, from you know, anti-Trump moderate Republicans, anti-Trump independents in the middle. But there's now you see like their staff or sorry, they're, they're some of their more progressive lawmakers and a lot of their staffers that demand that you can't, you know, have a moment where Biden goes out in front of a camera and says, defund the police is crazy. The, 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 the right. things you can't have you can't have a sister soldier moment like Clinton used to great effect in, in the 1992 campaign because it would turn it would, it would it would create a civil war within the Democratic Party. So they have an advantage in that. I think their voters are you know if you if you have enough smart people working these campaigns, you'll have the ability to have a more moderate uh, you know nominee or more moderate candidate. But they have to deal with identity politics. They have to deal with the, these kind of very radical views that are being uh, embraced by by the left. Um, is we saw this in Israel and, and the, the Hamas war that that was really mm-hmm. coming to a head, and it's it's created a lot of deep divisions within the party lately. Those are the challenges that they face. That they 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 have the votes. They can really um, be very successful if they chose. But it seems like a lot of their 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 top uh, advisors, uh, their top political operatives, almost want them to go in a more leftward, progressive direction. That's not in their own political interest. You know, I, I bring this up all the time. Just I think it is so perfectly scintillatingly symptomatic of or symbolic of of the larger dynamic, the whole Latinx thing, yeah. where 
like no Hispanic people outside of like a few Ivy league schools and sisters, you know, and, 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 and other sort of elite, you know, uh, liberal arts colleges and the various, you know, bureaucracies associated with them use the phrase Latinx. It's just not a thing. Um, and, and yet during the primaries, you would hear, you know, Elizabeth Warren and all these people using, um, Latinx and all sorts of, you know, intersectionality buzzwords and all these kinds of things. And it's one thing if you're trying to win over some sort of weird, invisible primary among influencers inside the party early on. I mean, I can get why you would do some of that signaling kind of thing, but I really felt like during the democratic primaries, a large number of these people had been told by black or Hispanic or gay activists inside of their orbit that this is the way you reach out to black or Hispanic voters in the real world, which you would think one focus group would have disapproved. And so it's sort of a Plato's cave thing, right? They're, they're all talking at the shadows on the wall rather than the things that are actually casting the shadows. And the things that are actually casting the shadows prefer to call themselves Mexican-Americans or, you know, or, or Americans or even Latinos. Um, and it, it, and that, this is what I'm getting at with about how they're determined to be a minority party. There's so much self-serving virtue signaling BS that is bad politics coming out of the Democratic Party. I mean, defund the police is the other obvious example. Yeah. Why can't the party? I mean, is this simply a function of weak parties? Like if if the if the parties were in fact strong the way they should be, would would a James Carville or Rahm Emanuel type just come in and say, shut up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's win an election? Well, this is uh, a huge point in the in the analysis that, that these Democrats make. It really says that the activist groups, the activist class of the Democratic Party, which holds outsized influence doesn't even represent the voters they claim to represent. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, and I think the, there's a media component to this as well, because the media always has served as a useful check against the worst excesses of any party, of any anyone in, in power or anyone who wants influence. And because, and this is a large, probably a larger theme to tackle, but I think because the media has become predominantly uh They've endorsed a lot of these views, a lot of the activists, or at the very least views of the elite, uh, upscale white progressive voters. They, they're not challenged. I mean, you're not seeing that kind of internal check uh, in, in the coverage. So you almost have this feedback loop that is giving the, the, um, the politicians and the, the, the professional class of pol- political activists and operatives, giving them bad information. I, I just, Dan, Dan Cena, who one of the most successful Democratic operatives. He was the first Hispanic uh, American to represent the DCCC, the House Democratic campaign arm. He won the House majority going away for the Democrats. He was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he he said basically that um, Democrats aren't speaking to like half the Hispanic electorate, the mm-hmm. men predominantly. But for example, the point he brought up was even more profound than Latin and Latinx and all that stuff. He said that a lot of Hispanics, they own small businesses, the, the shutdowns um, by, by Democratic governors in many states what was just deeply economically damaging to them. And, and their voices weren't being heard when they thought that there should be at least a little more moderation, a little more openness to uh, the regulations and the shutdowns that were taking place. But those criticisms, that, that feedback wasn't being heard because there was sort of this, and again, I think this is sort of both the activist class and also the media, which which had a certain point of view and, and, and on these 
on these issues. And um, that was deeply damaging in Miami-Dade County, um, where uh, Democrats lost double-digit margin, the double digits off their margins. Um, Republicans made huge gains in South Florida. It was a huge issue in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, where, mm-hmm. by the way, Republicans just uh, won a mayoralty in, in, in McAllen, Texas, which had been one of the more Democratic cities in the state. It flipped uh, the mayoralty just this past month. But th- these are not um, Cuban-Americans. These are Mexican-Americans working in the energy industry uh, whose economic lives were threatened by a lot of this green democratic environmental environmentalism and also by the by by the the shutdowns and the lockdowns um mm. they, they were very much against where the where the democratic party is going on, on, on those issues so like you know the, the other mistake is that all hispanics are kind of grouped in the same uh big umbrella where you you know i think democrats according to this autopsy seem to think that if you just speak spanish in an ad a month before the election that's enough to win over um hispanic voters that's not the case different constituencies demand different the levels of attention, different issues that, that animate them. And um, that sort of almost um, condescending uh, mm-hmm. way of treating non-white voters in the Democratic Party, all, all viewing the same things the same way, uh, that was deeply, deeply damaging in, in the 2020 election. Yeah, well, also just immigration, right? I mean, which we've been told for a million years, both in the Republican autopsy from 2012 to everything the Democrats say on for decades is that, you know, Hispanics owe fealty and loyalty and support to whichever party is maximalist on immigration. And, you know, the story of this country is, is, is over and over again, the story of immigrants coming here and then wanting to pull up the gangplank behind them. And moreover, like why you think that you'd think that sort of as a pejorative sort of general statement, like open borders would be appealing to Puerto Ricans who are already citizens of the United States with why you would even think that like the immigration policy that say Mexican Americans would be interested in, in California versus Mexican Americans in Texas, where Mexican Americans in Texas go back like 150 years in Texas compared to Mexican Americans. They're just, they're different Mexican Americans, never mind different ethnicities of Hispanic or different nationalities of Hispanic and like Cuban Americans have very opinionated views of other Hispanic Americans. And, um, it's always seemed to, and, and the tele, but like sort of the Telemundo captivity of, of MSNBC for years basically made it sound as if you were not for comprehensive, comprehensive immigration reform, you would never get a Hispanic vote again. And to me, that was always sort of like the policy equivalent of the Latinx thing. This is something that the activist groups are deeply invested in. And obviously, there are a lot of Hispanic Americans who have strong feelings about immigration, but it's just not the same issue for them that it is that they want it to be. In the way that some Jewish activists get very mad that Jewish voters don't just vote on Israel because they actually care about other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that was also a Republican problem, as you mentioned, because Look, Trump may not have been the nominee in 2016 if the Republican Party realized that maybe having a compelling economic message for Hispanic Americans uh, would would have been a better way to win them over than um, you know alienating the the, the right by by going um, for a more comprehensive uh, proposal. I mean, the, the, just the immigration. Just this past week, I mean, we saw sort of a slice of this this dynamic. Jonah, uh, you have Vice President Kamala Harris who ran well to the left in the in the presidential primary on these issues of immigration and, and, and border security. 
didn't win her. I mean, didn't win her any support in the Hispanic yeah. community in, in, the, in, in any of these these uh, communities that, that claim to be activated on immigration. She gives this very tone deaf interview. Uh, you know, she's alienated her own party because she's ha- handled the the the, the po- her, this is her policy brief: immigration, border security. Um, doesn't want to even go to the border. You know, has uncomfortable talking about it. And you have Henry Cuellar, who is one of the more battle-tested House Democrats right on the border. Uh, he's been primaried, by the way, by left-wing folks who have lost badly against him. He's telling Democrats, like, look, I the border issue is one that Hispanics care about. We're not as um, we're not for open borders. We need to have security. We need the Trump wasn't all bad on on, on some of the, the areas that he championed. And we've got to find a balance. We can't just be be uh, you know be, be catering to this activist class on that. And yet his voice gets drowned out, even though he he's an authentic and, and, and experienced uh, you know, representative of the community down there, his voice gets drowned out by, you know, if you watch, you know, CNN or MSNBC, you'll see, act, you know, or heads of these, these activist groups that, that get much more attention and drive the party in a, in a um, the democratic party in a, a more left-wing direction. Yeah. I mean, the other, other than Latinx, the best and the immigration stuff, the best illustration of this about the, because I think you're right. The part of the problem is the pernicious role that, sort of cable news plays where it it validates the extreme interpretation of politics so like big problem with fox where i'm a contributor and certainly oan and those places um the most extreme interpretation pro-trump interpretation they try to legitimize it as like a mainstream point of view and uh and that creates all sorts of problems for the republicans and on the democratic side they consistently make it sound, I mean, I watch a lot of MSNBC for reasons probably having to do with original sin and um, the degree to which they try to make very extreme marginal, once, once marginal ideological concepts like critical race theory and all these kinds of things, the mainstream definitional point of view of the average black person or Hispanic person or whatever is really kind of astounding. And it's the one exception to that, which I really, really enjoyed. I wrote a column about it was when it started to dawn on a lot of smart people that defund the police was insanely bad politics, just really, really bad politics and bad, bad, slow and, 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 and bad messaging. And there was a host of MSNBC hosts who would bring on some activists from like, you know, some, some satellite, community college and university of California system or something like that who would come on and they, and it would be you know, Stephanie rule or whoever would say, now we should clarify something. When you say defund the police, you don't actually mean defund the police. You mean reprioritize some funding for social services, blah, blah, blah. And then time and time again, the activists would say, no, in fact, we mean defund the police. That's exactly what we mean. And it got to the point where like the New York times even ran an op, uh, op-ed on the, op-ed page which you're not allowed to call it anymore saying yes we actually mean abolish the police at the time when the vast majority of african americans and hispanics said they wanted the same amount of policing or more policing um the feedback loop you get from from the cable news networks is really bad for democrats i mean and it's really bad for republicans i would argue because they they're telling them to take marginal positions rather than try to figure out how to take you know, they take they, they tell them take these narrow cast positions that are popular with our core audience, rather than a broadcast position which is sort of popular with the median voter. 
Yeah, uh, there. I think one of the bigger problems, both writ large in our, our larger culture and just for the Democrats politically as well, you know, a decade ago, Republicans and Democrats could both pick up the Washington Post, re- read the front page, have a shared set of facts. Mm-hmm. You could turn on CNN in prime time and there'd at least be a handful of shows. Well, you know, CNN was the, the network I would go to if I wanted to get breaking, you know, the, the latest yeah details on breaking news like there were places you there was fox there was msnbc there was places to get your your partisan cheerleading but there were also spaces where you could actually go to get just just the news just the facts and one of the things that kind of is disillusioning to me personally is is that the traditional news outlets both newspapers and uh cable news they're the ones that were the, the good guys, the ones that were you know holding up to a certain set of values, even if they weren't always lived up to, have abandoned that that posture. And then in, in, in some cases, have openly said that this is you know, the old way of doing things is you know no more. We need to have moral courage, moral whatever whatever jingo or you know, language they're using, and it's created a vacuum where like all these partisan extreme interpretations. There's no dissent allowed. Um, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I do a lot. I have a contributor to Fox, but I also do Morning Joe, done, done other mm-hmm. shows on other networks. And it was a period right after Biden got elected. I was on Morning Joe talking about um, how Biden should, you know, I, I was surprised he wasn't reaching out to the center more in his stimulus proposal. And uh, the the Twitter feed on Morning Joe was like 800 to one against me. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And then I go on Fox the same week and I criticize, Trump, you know, Trump for what he's doing you know, with, 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 with the election conspiracy theories. And I get the same feedback. Like there's, there's no room for someone who wants to just live by facts and lives by, and just, you know, criticize their own side occasionally, even if you have a certain point of view and that's damaging. I mean, that, that's why if this is a demand side problem, that voters are getting crazier and crazier and, and they're picking politicians that are representing that craziness, you know, that, that is why that they're not, there's no place or it's hard to find a place where you can at least pick up a newspaper, turn on the TV and just get the facts just get the news. But isn't this also just another Plato's cave problem, right? Because you're not actually getting feedback from voters when you go on Morning Joe or um, or on Fox. I'm not saying that the people who are beating up on you on Twitter or beating up on me on Twitter aren't voters or aren't real human beings. So some of them, in fact, are not actually human beings. Yeah. My point is, is that, I mean, isn't very online Twitter very different than the average voter, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side? Totally agree. I mean, I, I've been screaming that point for, for, for years, but for some reason, it seems that the powers that be, whether it's the, 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 the network heads or the, uh, you know, the, the, the editors or, or, or newsroom leaders feel like they need to cater and pander to the loudest minority of voices in, in, in the room. And, you know, po- politics, the folks who are the most engaged are the ones who vote and the ones who, who end up, you know, having an outsized impact in elections. So I get that dynamic, but boy, like I can't, you know, look at how many times you see like an institution, like look at the NBA, for example, last year where, you know, they, they, in the midst of the, the protest movements taking place across the country, you know, they really got very political um, mm-hmm. and to the point where like they thought it was great. And then, then they realized that ratings were down substantially both in TV and 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 also just the, the the backlash they were getting from a lot of lot of uh, stakeholders, and they did a total one eighty like quietly, but they they yeah they they uh, didn't uh, uh, continue to engage in that kind of politics. There's there's this weird dynamic where you have leaders of institutions and and of organizations that 
believe the 2% of Americans on Twitter, social media, the craziest people are the ones that control the, that, that, that represent the, 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 the country. And, and they don't seem to hear the silent majority that really, uh, I, I think is, is becoming more and more consequential by the day. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of, um, so my mom has this policy. Um, if you were, if we have a reservation at a restaurant, um, she did this when I was a kid that, you know, where we have a reservation at a restaurant and they are late getting us to our table. Like if they're saying, Oh, we're delayed, blah, 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 blah. She's like, okay, we'll wait. And the hostess will say something like, Oh, you can have a seat over there and wait. She's no, I'm fine right here. Right. And she just stays standing right in front of the maitre d' or the hostess, whatever, so that the hostess feels more pressure to say, to find that table because they just don't want this awkward situation of these people standing right up in their grill, you know, constantly. And to me, that's sort of Twitter, right? You get off, you know, I, mean, I do this. I'm sure you've done this. You get off of a TV show and you look at your Twitter feed and you think, and you like, huh, that's an interesting response. Or, oh my gosh, that's a terrible response. Or that's a great response or whatever. And you convince yourself, okay, this is the people. And it's not the people. It's a tiny, weird, po politically obsessed, politically drenched fraction of the people. I mean, our colleague, Fred, Chris Starwalt, just will not do Twitter because he's so, um, you know, uh, turned off by the distortion effect of, of Twitter. So, all right, let's, let's change gears slightly. Uh, for a long time, I talked about, and you're free to respond to any of these things, you know, but uh, I, I used to ask guests a lot. Um, will Joe Biden's presidency be more like um, the first two years of the LBJ administration or the last two years of the LBJ administration, right? Because uh, LBJ comes in huge sweeping legislative accomplishments. And then by the end of his thing, he refuses to run again because he's been so humiliated um, in the New Hampshire primary, even though he technically won the New Hampshire primary by a comfortable margin, I think. Um, uh, about a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, everyone was like, oh, it's not even LBJ, it's FDR, it's new, new deal, yada, yada, yada. It now seems to be foundering quite a bit. Um, what is your, you know, I have my views, but what is your top line take about why, uh, what the problem is and whether Joe Man and let me put it this way, is Joe Manchin good for the Democratic Party or bad for the Democratic Party? Well, look, it depends on where you stand. If, if you're a progressive that wants things to get done, if you want, you want your favorite policies to get passed, he's, you know, I, I, I actually appreciate the fact that they're really annoyed at Joe Manchin because they may be having this two-year window uh, of opportunity where they control the White House, the Senate, the House, even, even though the Congress is controlled by very narrow majorities. And they, won't, they just want Manchin to take one for the team. You know, just go, and, and, and I don't think he, um, you know, I, I don't think he may, run, he may not run in 2024, but I think he does have fundamental concerns about um, the lack of uh, bipartisanship and the fact that everyone's going off, off in extreme directions. And I think that's genuine. Um, okay, so I, I, let me just say one quick question on that. I agree it's genuine, but how explanatory is it, right? Is it necessary or, I mean, is it necessary or sufficient in that he also has, comes from a state that voted by, for Trump by 39 points, right? So the bipartisan thing is also a useful framing to couch his position on something. I mean, do, do you think, how, how, much, how much do you weight those various factors? Yeah, well, you have to understand the intense pressure that the progressive left puts through social media, mainly, 
on these more moderate Democrats. You know, you just just saw this. Um, you, you see a lot of stories these days where you hear Democrats kind of like Trump, you know, that's similar to the Republicans vis-a-vis Trump. And they're saying they, they want to say something about their concerns about the stimulus or about, about Ilhan Omar or about, you know, a very uh, divisive issue within their party, but they can't say anything. They don't want to say anything because they're, they're afraid of the left and social media and all this, this crazy backlash that, that would ensue. You know, Manchin is this shield. He is taking all that hatred, all that criticism, um, because, you know, there are other Democrats, not just Joe Manchin, Jonah, it's Mark Warner, it's it's Maggie Hassan, it's, you know, right. I could name you about a half, at least a half dozen Democrats, especially those up in 2022, who have this un, 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 unenviable task of both get, needing the energy of their base while also maintaining the middle. Mark Kelly in Arizona, first and, for, first and foremost. So what, what Manchin and, and, you know, Manchin and Cinema both aren't up for another three years. They, that's an eternity in, right. in politics. So they're, they're acting as this shield for a lot of their more exposed colleagues who don't need to end up taking a position, taking a vote on these very controversial, maybe unpopular policies. Um, so, I, you know, I, 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 if you just look at it as Manchin, I think that's a little bit misleading. I, I think he is representing uh, a you know, fairly sizable faction of the Democratic Party, the moderates, who would rather not have this stuff pass, but don't want to say it. Don't yeah. want to have to deal with primaries. Don't want to have to deal with their own base. And Manchin is a, because he is in a, a state with, you know, very white, very Trumpy state that he just, because of quirks of the West Virginia electorate, is able to, to be successful in. He's able to kind of protect a lot, a lot of the more uh, uh, quietly moderate Democrats. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, I, I remember LBJ once called the editor of the new Republic and said, please stop writing these glowing profiles of me and saying nice things about me. You're killing me in my, in my home state. And, um, and like for Manchin being attacked by the New York times and on MSNBC, that's politically not that bad for the guy. You know, I mean, it may not be always great, but in an era of negative polarization and negative partisanship to be attacked constantly on MSNBC and praised on Fox in a state that voted for Trump by 39 points, that's not a terrible place to be for a Democrat. And there's no other place like that. Right. Um, but, well, um, yeah, okay, but, but on Biden, I mean, it, my, my general view is that he, he got hoodwinked by liberal historians, by his own press, by his own staff. And he came into office and a bunch of people for by the convinced him also the success of the initial COVID relief package that they could go big, right? They could do new, new deal. And they were, they had a vision and an agenda based on a theory of the electorate that had, um, that had, that, that it was solidly behind him. When in reality, the facts on the ground is that he won narrowly and it wasn't behind him. And that he kept, he has an agenda that could work with 60 votes in the Senate, but he has to scramble to get 50. And the question is, is like, A, do you agree with that? And B, what does he have to do to sort of get right with the facts on the ground? Yeah, I mean, what was the, there was no mandate for Joe Biden. He, right. he lost by a narrower margin than any, I mean, it was, it, it was close in, in, in the three most hotly contested states to, to the point where you know, we were expecting a blowout. Biden won by four points, um, losing a dozen House seats. If it wasn't for Georgia, uh, they would have only gained one, a net of one, one, one Senate seat. They got three, which is still less than what they were expecting. So like the, the Georgia results 
gave Democrats this un, un, unreasonable sense of annuity, like that, that they could do anything, even though the Senate was still evenly divided and the House was, was being, you know, Pelosi's majority was being ha- hung onto by a thread. Um, I wrote a column and, and I, I, I took a lot of heat for it uh, at the time, but I think with the benefit of hindsight, it's held up fairly well. Yeah, Biden could have looked, have looked at the results, looked at how screwed up the, Demo- or the Republicans are in the Senate races. And actually said, look, in 2022, we could actually gain seats, a seat or two in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And even though the historical trends of losing House seats are, are there, the way the Republican Party is going, and if I govern in a more moderate way, kind of make, make these bipartisan deals, I might actually be able to reverse those historical trends, especially given that you already have a five-seat majority you're working with. Um, instead, he decided to go, as you know, Jonah, big on the, on the stimulus, $1.9 trillion do it on a party line vote. Uh, I think it's actually created some economic damage. I mean, I think, I think it's not helping, he's not helping himself for 2022. If as, as some smart economists fear that this could cause inflationary pressures could, could end up creating un- unintended consequences in the labor market, as we're already seeing, you know, this could actually hurt. Not only did he kind of jam some things down that were not very important in the, in the broad scheme of things on a party line vote, but he's limiting himself in getting democratic priorities done in, in, in the future. So I, I could have seen it, and I, when I wrote my column, I kind of urged him to kind of build back better, you know, like yeah. go small to begin, and then look, you could gain a seat or two in the Senate and not have to worry about Joe Manchin, and you could keep that, keep, there's a good chance, you could, maybe not a great chance, but a yeah, 30, 40% chance you could keep that House majority if you govern in a more moderate fashion. Um, he went for broke, uh, he maybe, may have done himself and his own party harm if the economic uh, outcome of, of, of the stimulus of overheating the economy ends up coming to fruition. And he, that might be the window, right? I mean, that may be, Republicans, if they get back the House, um, they may not be giving it back for a while. Uh, the Senate, um, I, 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 like, like I said, I still think Democrats are favorites to hold the Senate, but 2024 is looking pretty tough uh, map for the map uh, for, for Democrats. So they could have it for another two years and end up giving it back in 2024. And, they, and they're hurting their chances in the long term for the, the holding, holding the presidency as well. If, you know. The economy isn't as dominant of, of a factor in people's decisions as it was a couple decades ago. But when there's a bad economy, that's almost a surefire way to lose yeah. power. Uh, so if Biden, you know, if, if the hubris about the economy booming into 2022, 2024 doesn't hold up, boy, I mean, there could be, be a real serious backlash. Yeah. Also, you have to be in your literally in your 60s to have a really powerful memory of how bad inflation was and um, and how much it affected it just soaked through uh i mean i was alive during but i was a kid you know during the whip inflation now times and um but if you just look at it as a historical matter just the 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 erosion to savings the 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 constant sense that you're falling further behind if we do get runaway inflation uh, you know it's going to it's going to get ugly and I, and, you know, in, in all sorts of unpredictable ways, but you said, okay, so you just get, let's assume, I know this is not a huge intellectual leap for you. Um, let's assume I'm a moron and, um, and I've, or or I'm, I'm unfrozen caveman pundit. Right. And I've been, I've been, I've been frozen since the mid 1990s. An era where Bill Clinton, for the most part, won re-election by playing small ball, by doing small symbolic issues, um, 
by jiggering things in various ways and and being a fiscal hawk in certain ways in terms of the debt and deficit stuff and blah, 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 blah. And by doing all of this sort of Dick Morris triangulation stuff. Lots of people used to think that Joe Biden, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton once said that Joe Biden was like a Bill Clinton clone. They were so similar in how they thought about things, which I always thought was strange because I thought Bill Clinton's a lot smarter than, than Joe Biden. But um, you said earlier that Joe Biden today can't do a sister soldier type thing because it would ignite a civil war in the Democratic Party. Explain to me as a visitor from the 1990s or as a moron or whatever helped you, um, why that would necessarily be bad for Joe Biden. Why would that be bad for the Democratic Party if he picked the right issue, um, whether it's defund the police or, you know, someone from the squad or whatever it is. Would he really lose more Democratic voters and more Democratic support than he would gain from moderates and centrists and independents and and anti-Trump Republicans? I mean, what's the math on that? Yeah, I mean, the philosophy in both parties is, and it's new. I mean, used to, the, 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 when I started covering politics, the conventional wisdom was you go to the base in the primary, you go to the middle in the general, and that's how you win elections. You kind of pander to the left or right, then you come to the center. Now, and this started in the, you know, the Obama years, really, especially the, the, the second term of Obama, the, the prevailing philosophy in, in Democratic circles was, no, you got to micro-target the base. And if the base doesn't show up, you're not going to win a general election, no less right. a primary. But Ted Cruz's strategy I, I, in 2016, which Trump actually operationalized too, right? That was the yeah, yeah. turn up the base, uh, don't worry about the center, right? It was, it was the George W. Bush uh, philosophy to something, Karl Rove's kind of philosophy yeah. in 04 too. Uh, Getting the evangelical vote out—that um, was a big, a big part of why Bush won Ohio and a lot of other swing states. So, you know, this is a long history. The, the, the evolution and the conventional wisdom changed over the years to the point where now it's like, if you don't get the base, if they're not happy, they can scuttle uh, uh, your your chances in a general election. You know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not 100% sold on that on that conventional wisdom, uh, especially in the Democratic side of the party, where as we've talked about. Uh, I, I think the the numbers of progressive activists voters are, are overstated, and 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 there's a silent majority of Democrats. Look at the New York City primary. The three front runners are moderate you know, for, for what in New York City terms are, are moderates, right? They're not right. calling for defunding the police. They're calling for economic development. They're they're more Bloomberg or uh, at least the less De Blasio types uh, in, in in the front runner spots. Um, so, <laughs> The, the real, the real, the real question is, um, you know, who's willing to kind of take the jump? You know, like, yeah. who's willing to take that risk? It, there's politics is in, in a weird way kind of a risk averse industry where no one wants to be the first to kind of make this catastrophic mistake. No one wants to take a risk that could, you know, like if if, if, if in Virginia where, where where I'm from, if Glenn Youngkin decided uh, running for governor to just criticize Trump like that, that that was it. You know, conventional wisdom would say, well, he may lose the Trump voters; they wouldn't show up for him. But, you know, it also could lead to him gaining ground among a lot of these Virginia moderates that, that make up the margins at a lot of, lot, lot of these close races in Virginia. So, like, I, I think there's a risk averseness, too, where you just don't want to be the first person to yeah. kill yourself uh, when you're dealing with a competitive race. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, if Liz Cheney were a representative from Northern Virginia, um, she would, uh, her position would win her, her dis- re-election, right, yeah. in, in Northern Virginia. Um, so the, um, 
but I, I, I just thinking about it out loud. I mean, I, I guess I also think part of the problem is that we have so mainstreamed the idea, particularly in liberal circles, this sort of the, the, the anti-racism argument, which is that if you don't agree with a certain group's definition of what racist policies are, you are a racist. So the, there's nothing that is more, you know, anathematizing or stigmatizing in democratic circles than being called a racist for a Democrat, right? It's, it's, it's even worse than being called anti-Trump for a Republican. And, and this is one of the remarkable things about why Manchin is with, you know, cause they're, they're going all out calling them racist now, or at least a lot of people are. And that probably has something to do with why, like if you if did a sister, I mean, literally if you did a sister soldier today, the way Bill Clinton did, he'd be called a racist by large swaths of the Democratic Party. Well, and this goes back to our, our earlier part of the conversation where what, what, what's different if you were a caveman frozen in the 1990s yeah. and, and come, come alive now? Social media. I mean, the, you can, I'm sure there were people that called Bill Clinton a, a racist, right? But they were limited to the kind of newsletters or whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever slower means of communication were, were around in the 1990s. These days, you know, without a Without any thought, you could have some social media influencer calling man, and then everyone follows that person, and then it becomes immediately conventional wisdom, right? Yeah. So, so I, I I can't overstate how much social media has changed this this dynamic where there are no gatekeepers, parties, media, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and and all the avenues of, of politics have have, have been totally uh, collapsed. Um, there there are no gatekeepers. It's it's hard to keep quality control these days because you have loud voices on social media that at the very least are great, you know, scaring uh, leaders uh, and, and, and politicians, politicians as well from um, taking the right politically savvy position. Yeah. And it's, I would argue it's a, it's a one, two punch of the role of social media and the role of primaries, right? Cause primaries, you know, we've out, the parties have outsourced the nomination process entirely to primaries, which is an unusual thing in Western democracies. We've only been doing it since the early seventies. And then you add in social media and it accelerates the same and, and also the dominance of cable news, right? So you have these, these, this conflation, a sort of perfect storm of three factors coming together and it just gives primaries and the people most inclined to be angry and vote in a primary outsized power to influence who gets the nomination. Right. I mean, but the fuel is social media. The fuel of that all is social media, right? I mean, yeah. prim- the, we've had primaries for at least a generation. I mean, presidential primaries going back to the to the late '60s, early '70s, and you know the, that that's not new. What is and, and you know, I think there are unhealthy dynamics of having the most you know ideological partisans choosing nominees. But I think the the crazy, um, you know, just the, the ideas that just would have been laughed at. Yeah. A decade ago, right? Uh, you mentioned a couple of them, but QAnon, the, the whole you know critical race theory stuff. I mean, stuff that Democrats would have said, you've got to be crazy. There's no way you're going to win an election, even in a blue state, if you if you talk like this. They have been mainstreamed in a way I never would have ever imagined. Yeah. I, I can only point to social media as being the, the, the major factor behind that. So, I mean, I know you're a, you're a, a you know, a politics analyst and a cephologist guy, and you, you're not necessarily a policy guy, but this is close enough. Um, HR one for the people act, right? I mean, like what I'm not asking you to take a editorial position on one way or the other, but if let's put it, let's ask it this way. If it were to pass, 
which I think would be bad. Just so I'm laying my cards out on the table because I think it is a it is a messaging bill that a bunch of people have convinced themselves is a serious piece of legislation. If you disagree, I'd love to hear it. What would it do to our elections if um how how would how would change the elect the election landscape if it were to actually be passed? So I'm a lonely voice. I wrote a column about this right before the Georgia bill was passed about basically arguing that all of these election rules debates are about just trying to get your little advantage power wise, you know, just, just incrementally trying to gain a little bit of power. It's not about principle. It's not about there's just hypocrisy all over the place. Voter fraud isn't happening in any, any real way. Uh, voter suppression isn't happening right. in any, any significant way, even with the, the, the Georgian and Texas bills. Um, you can disagree with them. You think they're bad policy, but, but the notion that this is going to dramatically uh, uh, suppress or, or that, you know, there was voter fraud or the, yeah, you know, just just not happening. I'm one of the few people who believes that that the a big issue of administration of elections, like a, mm-hmm. a clean, efficient administration administration of elections, is totally being ignored, which I think is a in the national interest. Um, New York took over a month to count votes yeah. in this last election. Right, a lot of it was because they just had a rickety system and they were liberalizing like how you how you voted, early voting, absentee voting. To the point where the, the the administrators and the people you know running the show couldn't count the votes in a timely manner. New York's not a swing state in the presidential election, but can you imagine if you know uh, Wisconsin had had a yeah. similar dynamic? I mean, you would have, you wouldn't be able to you know if you had a similar close election and you're not certifying a result a month after the election that that's a that's a crisis that's a problem. Um, I, I think a lot of the shenanigans that Trump was causing was in large part because we didn't count the vote efficiently that, that mm-hmm. we, we and we had these weird dynamics where republicans voted on election day and democrats voted early and it created this this, this confusion among voters who don't follow politics who, who shouldn't have to follow all these all these details about how how votes are cast and all, all these different dynamics taking place um you know I, I i i'm sympathetic to the fact that you need you might you probably want early voting for people who can't vote on I, there is something unifying about having an election day and having mm-hmm. everyone go to the polls i think it's a, it's a very democratic uh health you know it's a it's a it's a, it's a great civic uh <laughs> day to to really celebrate democracy so i also, understand but- journalists are among the only people who really in my experience is that unfair lots of people understand this point but like journalists have a particular understanding of how deadlines are clarifying yeah. right you know like when you like when you have a deadline you got to figure it out and you got to do it. If you have this sort of rolling loosey goosey thing, it's less, it, it, do, it just doesn't focus the mind the same way. I mean, I think deadlines are a good thing. Well, HR, so you asked about HR one yeah. it mandates, I, I believe two weeks of early voting, which yeah. you can debate that. You can, sure. I mean, that, that, that's become sort of a standard these days in a lot of States, but um, you know, a month of early voting when before debates take place before the campaigns really heat up. I mean, that, that just increases partisanship. It, it actually almost, bastardizes the, the the system in a way um you know the, the 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 notion that you're you can send a ballot in and on election day and it won't be counted till after the election um california's had that some other mm-hmm. pennsylvania you know had that th- this year um you know I, I i guess it's okay but it takes you know it, it takes days if not weeks to count those votes and to have a winner declare a winner and it, it, i think that that just exacerbates distrust and mistrust yeah. in the system i think we want to have I, i'm not you know the trump notion of you know fraud i mean this is all crazy talk but 
I do think that some of the more liberal rulemaking when it comes to elections, which took place long before Trump, um, this, this is not just a Trump thing. It's, it's um, something that's been going on for, for the last couple of decades. Um, you know, I think, I think there needs to be a conversation about like, you want to expand access, but you don't want to do it in a way that just grinds the gears of democracy to, to a halt. And, um, we saw that in 2020, we saw some, in some parts as a necessity because of COVID and, and, and the, the strange rules around the strange situation around this election. But I do think that the notion of having an effectively run system has been lost amid all this talk about suppression fraud. You know, that I, I think, and I also think Nate Cohn at the New York Times has raised this point. Um, a lot of these bills, HR1 in particular, don't address the real issue that we have to worry about when it comes to democracy, which took place in January, which is not so much early voting rules or how you get an absentee ballot, but when you have state officials that are willing to overrule right. the, co- the count, right? I mean, the, the, you have, I mean, it, the, the unwritten, the, maybe the underserved story of 2020 is that you had many Republicans, Trump-supporting Republicans, who stood up against Trump, whether it was Brad Raffensperger in Georgia or Governor Ducey in Arizona, like the election official in Michigan who who, who took a brave vote uh, against right-wing pressure not to certify results. Um, You know, the worry I have, and I think Nate Cohn has written about it much more articulately than than I have, but the the, the worry about, like, if you want to protect democracy, and I think that's a little overstated, like, Mm -hmm. the demise of democracy, I think, is a little overstated, but the one thing I am worried about is, you know, having these election administrators freelance and, you know, overruling account for some absurd reason, and these bills do nothing to to deal with that, that issue. They're just totally unrelated to the biggest threat. If you believe that there's a major threat, the one issue that is, is important doesn't touch at all. So, you know, I think if there was a way to get some bipartisan support for election reform, it would be dealing with kind of the ability to certify a count without any partisan shenanigans. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that entirely. And also, I mean, look, but also it, I learned from Rudy Giuliani that most votes in America are actually counted overseas um, in, in authoritarian countries like Venezuela. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, but he did say that. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he said that even as people were debating online the live feed from the vote counting in Philadelphia, he was talking about how most ballots are counted abroad, uh, which is loved. Um, but all right, so we're going to wrap up in a second. But you are um, you are insufficiently scornful of primaries, and we will we'll chastise you and burn you in effigy for that later. But um. There's an idea that is sweeping the dispatch like a prairie fire. Um, Chris Darwalt is now all in, at least for primaries. Um, uh, Sarah Isger as well is, I think she is, she's, she's moved into a wildly pro column. I am very sympathetic, but I'm still open to being talked out of it. Would rank choice voting fix a lot of these problems, what are, at least for primaries, what, what, what is your view on ranked choice voting? I know it makes your job harder because it screws with the polling, <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, what, what, what is your take on it? And do you think it's worth, you know, kicking the tires on it? It's growing on me. I, w- I was a skeptic at first, namely because I think the, the more you confuse voters, it can yeah. kind of cr- turn off voters from participating, right? I mean, I think it, it took me like uh, you know an hour to f- figure out all the all the ramifications of the rules. And if I'm 
I'm someone who follows politics pretty closely and it takes a little time to understand all the provisions with a you know, instant runoff ranked choice system. You know, I, I don't know that, that that's necessary. You don't want to confuse voters. You don't want to make things more complicated than they need to be. I also don't think it would necessarily dramatically change the outcome of primaries. Um, you know, we, we have a few that we can look at. Um, Virginia did their convention. What well, wasn't a primary it was this sort of weird convention primary yeah. hybrid system for the nomination for governor and all these other offices. And, you know, the, the first place winner, Glenn Youngkin, was also the, the ranked choice, you know, was also the, the runoff, instant runoff winner. So even though there was concern about, you know, a right wing candidate winning the first place vote and they did this so they could help the more moderate candidate, it turned out that you pretty much had the same results, no matter, you know, well, the, even, even, even with um, that dynamic. New York City mayoral race, Eric Adams leading in first place in the polls, leading in the ranked choice. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not as, you know, I, I think it, it, on the margins it can help a little bit, but I don't know if it really dramatically changes the dynamic um, in primaries. I still think you're, if you're in a conservative district, why wouldn't you still elect a conservative Trumpian right wing nominee? Like that, I don't think that is going to change the dynamic all that all that meaningfully, um, and it may just confuse voters. Uh, Though in, in 2016. In Trump would not have done well if there was ranked choice voting, right? Um, you know, it's a good question. I, I I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, you would have had, um, I mean, I, I, Trump clearly had a lot more support among moderate. You know, by, by the end of the process, Trump had. Remember, we thought we thought Ted Cruz and we thought Marco mm-hmm. Rubio once it got down to a three person race would end up winning that anti-Trump vote, and that wasn't that, that conventional wisdom was not accurate. Um, now maybe if you looked at the earlier states and how things would have happened in New Hampshire and, um, you know, in, in South Carolina, maybe, maybe things would have been a little different, but I don't know if that would have been the case, Jonah. I think Trump actually had a broader coalition of support than we appreciated at, at the time. It may have helped. Like it certainly wouldn't have hurt the chances of someone like Rubio or Cruz or someone else, but I, I don't think it would have made a huge difference. Um, now I, I will say that I, I, on my podcast this week, I have a, a really fascinating guest. Uh, her name is Catherine Gale. And she wrote a book about election reforms. And she actually has this really interesting idea that I actually, like, I give my endorsement to uh, mm-hmm. because I think it actually does solve some of the, the problems. Um, she basically, her, her idea is kind of get rid of primaries, have everyone run on the same ballot. Like everyone, you know, open up the primary system to everyone and incentivize uh, people to run. And then the top five finishers would move on to a runoff. And then you would do a ranked choice right. uh, system. So that would basically have a front end where you would kind of eliminate the the kind of crazies or try to you know get that out of the system, and then you would once you get the five, final five, you would be able to kind of use ranked choice in in, in, in a way, and that's what's happening by the way in Alaska. Basically, Lisa right. Murkowski, she, she her argument is that you need to change the incentives for governing. So Lisa Murkowski has been notably independent in this Congress, largely because she doesn't have to worry about facing a Republican primary. But even if you had ranked choice. If you had a ranked choice Republican primary for, for Murkowski, I think he was, she would still face the same pressures. But the way the system works, which is largely based on this the system that, that Catherine Gale was talking about, uh, she now is freer to be more moderate, more independent in, in her positioning. So, anyways, that's a lot. I, I think I, I'm up. I'm entertain. I'm up for entertaining the notion that you know get rid of primaries. Let, let's let's do something different. But I, I also am aware of the law of unintended consequences, which is that sometimes the changes that sit sound good end up doing things that we don't fully and, and uh, uh, expect or anticipate. 
And I, I and like I said, I'm skeptical that ranked choice would meaningfully change the outcome in a, in a lot of races. I think it would it, w- it would have an effect on the margins, but I don't I don't see it be, having a dramatic. No, that's all fair. And I, I've seen uh, Gail do her presentation, and it's really interesting. And I I'm I'll, I'll listen to the podcast. Um, I've been meaning to get, have her on on the remnant. Um, I'm totally with you on the law of unintended consequences that, you know, as a, um, as a Irving crystal acolyte, I should have a law of unintended consequences, um, tattoo somewhere. Um, but, um, one of the things I think a lot of people, cause there's such a recency bias. People think that like the way we do primaries is the way America has always done primaries. And it's just not, you know, it's not, we had primaries, starting at the beginning of the 20th century and no one gave a rat's ass because they didn't really do anything. And you look at the, go and look at, at the democratic um, primary races in 1968. And the guy who became the nominee came in like eighth, depending on how you do the math, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I think one of the things we've got, we're living in the unintended consequences of the McGovern reforms. and. Um, and so it's worth thinking about how you get out of them. Well, well here, my, my idea would just be bring back the gatekeepers. Let, pick the nominees yeah. in, a, in, a, in a smoke-filled room and, and let, let the... I, mean, I, think the I, I, I think that would be more broadly accepted, frankly, than um, having these arcane... Having these sort of complicated systems that are tinker... You know, people might end up becoming more mistrustful of, of, of elections, even though it's intended for the right reasons. On that, I agree with you entirely. I'm my first my my druthers would be first and foremost just get rid of primaries and bring back smoke filled rooms, particularly the smoke filled part. Um, and uh, but I whenever I bring this up, even even Elaine Kmark, who I've learned a great deal from on all this stuff, she says, "Yeah, oh, you can't get rid of them entirely. The party will never let you do it." And blah 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 blah. Democracy, bleh. So um, so I'm looking for the next best solution. But I'm with you. I I think the important institutions in this country and in a democ for a, for a democracy, you need a lot of undemocratic institutions that are allowed to look out for their own long-term institutional interests. And the Republican and Democratic Party are too beholden to social media, flash in the pan stuff, instant controversies, and not thinking about their long-term brands. And that's one of the reasons why we're in such a mess these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the bigger problem is that the, the crazies are the ones who show up to vote and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the middle, you know, the, the, that's why we call it the silent majority. They just, they don't participate. They don't, they don't get as animated uh, on issues, even if they're, they're moderating the views of their party. The, the question is how do you get those, um, you know, the, the, the moderate middle, the silent majority, how do you activate them? How do you get them to participate? Because yeah. they're getting there. And I think, look, they're, they're, there's a lot of, they're, they're growing more and more concerned about stuff around them. Uh, and and that, that's why you get a backlash. Yeah. <laughs> they don't participate when things are good, but when things get bad, that's when they they get activated. No, for sure. I mean, we're looking, I mean, like Biden could be overreaching much like Obama did, much like Trump did. And there could be a reaction. And the re- this reaction could be much more pronounced if we actually do get runaway crime and we do get runaway inflation. Um, um, or if interest rates go up and all of a sudden servicing the debt becomes, you know, like the bulk of government spending. I mean, there are lots of things that could, could really radicalize people in ways that people are not anticipating. I agree with that entirely. Um, all right, my friend, thank you, Josh Crushover for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, always good to have you on, uh, people can follow you on Twitter. Um, 
at Hotline Josh, right? That is it. That's right, Hotline Josh. Uh, and that's you get the column. There's also a free sign up to get all the columns and podcasts and all the the fun stuff uh, at that feed. And um and Hotline Josh for outside the Beltway people. It's a it is not like his old Studio Fifty Four name. It is um a uh, reference to the revered hotline that my wife worked for, that Steve Hayes worked for, um, Chuck Todd, Josh, Amy Walter. Uh, basically a Mount Rushmore of punditry um, work for. And, um, uh, and you are, you're not, I mean, you, it, the hotline still exists, yeah. but it's, uh-uh. it's not what it, w- this weird thing where the, the fumes from the fax machine intoxicated people all around the beltway. Yeah. Well, um, we, we're, we were no longer faxing it. In fact, I, I think I told this story last time, but, um, we were still printing it out and, and, and you know, the, the old time hotline subscribers still expected a hard copy. Like Mitch, the, the one call I'll never forget getting when I was editor of the, the hotline was a McConnell's office called because they, we got rid of the print, the full 200 page hotline yeah, yeah, yeah. out. And he wanted his staffers wanted it on his desk, printed out. And we needed to bring back the, we can't just do this digital email stuff. We had to actually print out the full hard copy. So um, yeah, we have a lot of, lo- I mean, we, uh, we have, we still still chugging, still still uh, offering all the same election analysis and aggregation, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of like an editor emeritus. I, I help uh, the the team led by Leah Eskaranam, who's doing a great job, uh, and it's an, another generation of, of really talented young political reporters that, that really know their stuff. I'm I'm sure. Um, all right, man, I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on, and um, we'll definitely have you back. Thanks, Jenna. All right, so Josh is a. Uh, has left the studio and um um, always good to talk to him we should have him on more often and uh just some housekeeping things uh i'm going to try and do uh solo remnant Uh, i haven't figured out the timing of this my daughter graduates from high school tomorrow on friday um or so for those of you listening to this on friday uh greetings from uh, the past, um, hello to the future, but, uh, and the day is committed to my daughter and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and the schedule is kind of a moving target cause we don't know if it's going to be raining. We don't know this, that, and the other thing got dinner and get together stuff. So anyway, it makes, it makes for complications recording a podcast tomorrow and, um, for writing a G file, but I'm going to try to accomplish both. And if I don't, you now, you know why. And, um, other than that, um, anything else I could announce or tell you about, I would probably save for the solo remnant because I need to figure out what I'm going to say on that thing. So, um, thanks for tuning in, please. If you can become a dispatch subscriber, um, or a member of the dispatch community, I'm not supposed to say subscriber for reasons I've never quite figured out, but, um, even though I was in on all those meetings, um, and, uh, um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. It's a, it's a podcast. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.